MSW Media. So, Asha, what's Alvin Bragg's legal theory for charging Trump in the hush money case? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent and a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Okay. <laughs> um, where do we start? So I, I think today let's, you know, we're, we're basically just in speculative mode now. We're anticipating a grand jury indictment uh, from the Manhattan DA's office. We're pretty sure that it relates to the hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels by Michael Cohen um, back in 2016. And we know that because she's testified in front of the grand jury and he's testified in front of the grand jury. But I think that there is some question on what the legal theory is going to be. In other words, how is how would he brag um, design these charges? in a way to both be something that he can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury and will hold up against legal challenges um, and also reflect something that is a crime that, you know, people would be charged with um, as opposed to some kind of, you know, Frankenstein type of you know, they've called this the zombie prosecution like a Frankenstein prosecution of something that you know no one's ever seen before is that fair yeah I think so I, I think you want to I what you want as a prosecutor is always to charge a case that is is in line with your prosecutions in other cases and if you're deviating from that if you're prosecuting something totally new or different Usually, you know, that comes with additional challenges and that's something you want to signal. Um, you know, I had prosecuted a first of its kind case and it was like a big deal, even though it was of somebody who was unknown because that that was unusual and hadn't been done and, and all of that. So let's start with the very basic part that we are pretty certain he's going to start with the baseline charge. And the baseline charge here seems to be a falsification of business records because when Michael Cohen paid Stormy Daniels $130,000, he paid Stormy Daniels out of his own pocket and then he was reimbursed for that payment by the Trump organization. The Trump organization listed this reimbursement as payments for legal services when in fact Michael Cohen did not provide legal services. And so the like actually documenting that in a way that did not reflect what it truly, the tr payment truly was for is itself a fraudulent entry. That's right. If it's done with the intent of the fraud. And I think we talked about that last week, right? I mean, that there's challenges proving intent to fraud here. We'll have to see what their evidence is on, on that. So now the criticism of that is that the falsification of business records 
charge is only a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor being a crime that is punishable by less than one year, generally considered to be, you know, less important or significant offenses. Though I know we've, you know, in, in our little lawyer chat group, we've had talks about how, you know, there are serious crimes like domestic violence crimes that are misdemeanors. And, you know, sometimes maybe the question should be, why is this not actually a more serious crime <laughs> under the law, <laughs> right? In, in other words, sure. the misdemeanor piece, I don't think always answers the question of how much we value this um, in terms of the harm it creates. But in any case, the, the falsification is um, itself a misdemeanor, which would be an odd thing to charge first, uh, you know, in this historical indictment against a former president. Um, but New York law, so if we're kind of creating the flow chart here, New York law has a provision that if the falsification of business records is done to, with the intent to commit, aid in the commission, or conceal another crime, then it can become a felony offense. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I think the question here is, what is the felony? And that's the, there you go. What it's like, where's Waldo? Felony? What's the felony? That's the question for today. Yes. And so until now, I think the discussion has largely centered around an assumption um, that the underlying felony is a campaign finance violation. Right. And I will just point out the New York Times had some reporting on that. Now, that may have been speculation from Trump's attorneys. We don't know. But that's why we went down that path last week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be fair. And, you know, then you get into, again, going down the flow chart. If you go down underlying felony as campaign <laughs> finance, this is how my mind thinks. Um, then you have either possible state campaign finance laws that could have been violated or federal campaign finance laws that have been violated. And you run into problems in either of those tracks. On the state Correct. track, there is the illegal potential legal roadblock, which is that because Trump was running for federal office, that that state law may be what's called preempted by federal law. In other words, it's not something that can be enforced. Correct. If you go down the federal campaign finance uh, law, the roadblock you hit is it's not clear that the New York statute that allows, I call it the bump up, that allows the bump up includes federal crimes as an underlying offense. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're kind that, that would be like a first of its, that would be something that would have to get decided by the New York Right. Court, so that right? would require statutory i think both of those would require statutory interpretation the first one of the federal election campaign act and the second one of new york state law and you know i think they're both potentially novel questions that could take a while to figure out right that that's sort of like when i said you know hey when you're doing something for the first time even if you're charging john doe instead of donald john trump um, that's a big deal, right? Either, either of those would be like a path breaking case under New York law, potentially. Yes. 
So, you know, I think the criticism has been, okay, so you have this pathway to bump this up to a felony, but if you're going to go down this campaign finance route, this is a very risky proposition. It's not something that has really been done before, though I think some of our colleagues disagree and say that there's other precedent. I'm not really sure. I haven't delved into that. Um, mm -hmm. But it, I think, oh my God, Pancake. Um, Pancake is her cat. Just if you're if you're listening and not watching, um, Pancake, unlike Henry, my dog is is naughty. Is naughty. Yes, indeed. Very naughty. Um, yes. So you know, so I think that, and I and I think that there's there are people waiting to jump at you know the whole campaign finance thing and to tear it apart and 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 fair and to be fair to those critics. Um, because of the reasons that we just outlined, it's not entirely clear that Bragg would be able to move forward even as a legal matter on that theory. Yeah, I, I think that there's a possibility that both of those questions could get resolved against them in New York courts. And by the way, another feature of having charging things that are so complicated um, in that are, are novel is that it delays a prosecution. In other words, you have to have this whole court fight beforehand, and it wouldn't surprise me if Courts are like, we're going to let this uh, be appealed before you even get to a trial, because if it turns out that the the highest court in New York, which is called the Court of Appeals, disagrees and says, no, this is not a proper legal theory, there wouldn't be a trial at all. So I could see a court allowing uh, defendants to do that. Right. So yesterday um, I was speculating on Twitter as I am wont to do. Um, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, he listed these as payments for legal expenses to Michael Cohen in their books. You know, what presumably, I, I mean, I, one cannot assume, but let's say there is evidence that then Trump organization um, took this as a deduction on their state taxes because it would be an expense um, to you know the company. Um, obviously, it would be a fraudulent deduction because those services were never received. Then the could the underlying crime be criminal tax fraud, which under New York law is really is basically anything that is done with the attempt with an intent to um, evade tax liability. Um, or or alter your tax liability or reduce your tax liability. Um, and then this morning, the New York Times published an op-ed by our colleagues Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman, which had a slightly different perspective on this on the tax fraud theory, which is that what the Trump organization did in reimbursing Cohen, was they didn't just say, "Hey, let's we're going to give you one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in you know four installments, equal installments that add up to one hundred and thirty thousand dollars." Because Michael Cohen says, "Wait, I have to report you when you pay me for legal services. I have to report that as income, and then I pay taxes on that. And so you know, I'm not actually getting the full hundred and thirty thousand dollars back because you know after they take the taxes out of it, it's less than that." And so the Trump organization paid him more 
which he then reported in order to, you know, be whole to the tune of at or close to $130,000. And we know from previous reporting from when Cohen um, was charged with his campaign finance uh, or pled guilty to it, that he had sham invoices from the Trump organization. So they, you know, presumably these amounts and dates and everything are listed out. What do you think of the tax fraud theory, either as a fraudulent deduction taken on the on the Trump org side, fraudulent income reported to Cohen by the Trump org side, fraudulent income reported by Cohen on his own tax returns? I mean, you know, to me, this sounds much more straightforward. Yeah. So a couple thoughts. I mean, first of all, um, just on its face, there's uh, some really appealing things about it. I mean, first of all, it sidesteps these sort of novel, you know, unusual um, uh, legal theories, right? First of its kind, this is much more bread and butter, right? Uh, tax, tax crimes are the sort of things that get charged all the time. And people having false business records in relation to tax crimes is pretty commonly prosecuted, including in New York, based on, you know, some uh, some work that others have dug up. So that I think is is really promising. And I will say regarding the first of the two, the the Asha speculation theory uh, of of the underlying crime being tax of ev- tax evasion or some sort of tax crime by the Trump organization. If the facts bear out, I think that's very strong. And, and the reason that that's strong, I think a couple reasons. One is um, it rings true, I think, to a jury. In other words, I think a lot of jurors would have trouble getting their head around the idea that paying off Stormy Daniels as a campaign expense, like that's going to be a head scratcher to certain jurors. But I think jurors are going to kind of come into this thinking that big corporations try to uh, lower their taxes by any means necessary. And so trying to convince them that some billionaire in his company are trying to lower their taxes in a not entirely honest way is going to appeal to jurors. All right. So that's the first thing. And then second of all, there's no question that um, the 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 state of New York has an interest in making sure that people aren't evading their taxes. And so it's completely like righteous and normal for and and accepted and commonplace for the state to bring um, charges related to tax crime. So I think that would be great. One one thing I'll flag, though, is, you know, the tax bill here was not due until after Trump was president. And so it wouldn't surprise me if because he became president and they thought there would be increased scrutiny that they ultimately didn't go forward and do, you know, claim this as a business expense. And if they didn't, then that would put the DA in an odd position of saying, well, we believe that this was constructed in order to um, facilitate a tax crime that never actually occurred. It would be like an attempt or something like that. And, you know, that I think is more, in the, we're, we're back in the realm of things that I, I think I would not ordinarily be charged. I just have, I, I struggle with whether or not that's the sort of case that would be charged. Uh, if there's no actual tax tax loss to the state of of I keep saying Illinois because I'm from Illinois, but it's in the state of New York, um, so I, I'm I'm skeptical of that. But even then, I think it may be stronger than the than the the campaign finance. 
So then the underlying crime you're saying would have to be a conspiracy to commit tax fraud. Or an attempt. Yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah, or an attempt. But here's the thing. Wasn't the prosecution against the Trump organization, the criminal prosecution that just happened, he was continuing to shut his tax shenanigans even after he became president no i i don't know i don't recall i mean i don't i would have to go back and check but i'm pretty sure that it wasn't like oh my god i'm president <laughs> gotta do everything by the books now i mean come on like yeah, I, this is trump we're talking about well, that would about. be but that that's great that guy like tried to deduct a five dollar you know dues payment to the boy scouts as a business deduction no kidding um okay well, yeah. I'll, I'll take your word of that that's that's that amazing was, that was actually from the new york um with the civil investigation into his foundation that ended up being dissolved. Okay. Wow. He he paid for Barron's Boy Scout dues, which was literally, I think, $5 from the foundation, which was, you know, an inappropriate expense to be paying out of a charitable foundation. And then I guess, so I think that was the fraud is sure. that, you know, he was paying for stuff out, out of the foundation, that, used that which was already getting taxed. All right. Breaks, that makes obviously. more sense. I, I just think in general, if, if, if this was done, if they actually went and defrauded the state, then I wonder why, like, yes, that would be, I think, an obvious way to charge. So I would say from my perspective, the sort of Asha theory, okay, we can call you, you can come up with your names. I'll come up with my, my name. Do I things. get to get credit? The, I didn't, uh, my, mine wasn't in the New York well, Times. I don't, know, I don't know if it matters. It may be, it may be better than the theory that was in the New York Times. I like that theory. If that pans out factually, the other theory is that this is all done to help out Michael Cohen. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that rings true. Like, why would the Trump organization go through all this trouble to, like, help out Cohen, right? I guess the point is... It, it, to keep him, to keep his mouth shut, to keep him happy. They did that to Weisselberg, too. Remember, they were paying him. They had a separate set of books. They were giving him uh, an apartment. They were giving, sure. you know, they were giving him all kinds of stuff under the table for him to be able to do his their dirty work. Yeah, but then why not just... Pay, pay it to him like why not just characterize it accurately as a hush money payment and not have it be an ex, uh, an income to him at because all. they didn't want it to be known i mean because it was also a campaign finance violation. or because they just didn't want well, yeah i don't know they yeah either the, i mean there's got to be some way of explaining that right separately so maybe they'll charge both maybe they'll do it both ways i i don't know i i'm uh, that one I'm a little bit more skeptical of, but it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, that's just there, there's a bit of a gotcha element to me with that one. Like the underlying crime is like Michael Cohen's crime. It also, I will just say, also puts yeah. way more weight suddenly on Cohen's testimony again. I mean, you know, if this. That's why. And I don't think that's why I don't know that you could actually. That's such a good point that that would be Michael Cohen's crime of misreporting his income, which, by the way, would technically be a net gain. For New York, because right. if he was over-reporting income, if he was inflating income um, that he actually didn't provide services for is fraud, but also presumably New York got its tax money. You know, I know a lot of you are listening. You're like, I don't really care. I just, let's just get this done. But I'll just tell you that is a, when I look at this as a pro, as somebody who had been a prosecutor for a long time, like ordinarily when we're trying to weigh whether to bring a case, like a big thing for us is, did the did the government lose money here like did the people actually get harmed like that's because 
ultimately there's like unlimited crimes that could be charged. Like if you're a prosecutor, there's people like trying to come to you all the time, like charge this, charge that. And you're trying to make decisions about what the best use of the public's resources are. And so if like, there's no actual loss, like that's why I said like an attempt, I would find that like a head scratcher, like they didn't actually go through with it or here, like if he actually gained, like the public gained money off of this, like, I mean, it just, it, it definitely raises more questions about why Bragg thinks that this is uh, worth all of the resources. Cause this is gonna cost a lot of money in terms of time and resources uh, from the Manhattan DA's office. So the things to look out for, number one, is there a bump up from a misdemeanor to a felony? Two, what is the underlying crime that is doing the bump up? Is it a campaign finance violation? Is it criminal tax fraud? Is it conspiracy to commit criminal tax fraud? Or is it something else that we have not even imagined yet? Yes. And I'm very interested to see because I think there's been a lot of speculation. I, I think it is entirely possible that what the New York Times reported was the Trump lawyers speculation about what the charges would be rather than like an insider account from the Manhattan DA's office. So it may be very different. And in which case we're going to have to figure that out and and talk about those charges whenever they come out uh, on this uh, podcast, which we'll do. But at least this gives you a sense of what's on our minds right now. And I think it's fair to say our reasoning on it's evolving. And I actually really like the idea you came up with, Asha. So maybe you should go work for the Manhattan DA's office. Thank you. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Renato, I know that recently DOJ, as we pivot to yet another investigation, uh, in its investigation of the Mar-a-Lago documents, um, requested a court to rule on whether they could question one of Trump's attorneys um, under the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. Can you want to break that down? Because you were pretty surprised that at the outcome of that. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I've been practicing criminal law for around 20 years, and I have never seen a prosecutor invoke the crime fraud exception. It was, to my knowledge, it was never done uh, went at my office, which is one of the largest in the country, uh, U.S. attorney's offices in the country when I was there. Um, and I've never seen it in private practice. And, you know, I did comment about this publicly. I'll just say that in the last days since that came out, I've had multiple defense attorneys on my cases that I've worked with say, you know, I saw your quote. I've never seen it either. It's never happened to me either. It's like crime fraud is something that's often discussed and you see it discussed on Twitter and elsewhere, but it's rarely actually invoked by prosecutors for like all sorts of reasons. But, you know, for one thing, judges are very skeptical about piercing attorney client privilege, you know, for, for one thing. Second of all, um, 
you know, it is, it's something that if you do get a judge to rule, you know, rule in your favor, it, I mean, it is very big, a very big deal, but the evidence that's generally required is very substantial. You really need evidence that not only that, let's say the attorney was in on some sort of criminal activity, but that there are communications out there that would be very, um, relevant to that. In other words, that these communications are part and parcel or would be in furtherance or would have evidence of that criminal uh, criminal activity. Um, and so it just isn't, it isn't done much, but that happened here. And it really told me a couple of things. Um, you know, the fact that Jack Smith is seeking the, you know, sought the crime fraud, you know, to use the crime fraud exception to get the communications of one of Trump's attorneys really tells me that he's being so aggressive. I, I don't know if you and I, I think talked when he was appointed Asha and uh, you know, a lot of people were skeptical of that appointment, thought he was going to slow things down. I mean, it's like the exact opposite, yeah. right? Um, super aggressive. So just to break down, because there's so many investigations <laughs> happening, <laughs> um, <laughs> this presumably, and correct me if I'm wrong, Renato, would have to do with communications between Trump and what's Corcoran's first name? Evan. 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 I can't keep track of all his crazy lawyers. Um I'm assuming that these conversations were, are, are the communications that Jack Smith is interested in relate to what was being communicated between Trump and this lawyer in certifying uh, compliance with the subpoena to recover the documents. Is that right? Um, because yeah. the question is, and, and just to emphasize the crime fraud exception. So, you know, when you talk to an attorney, those communications are privileged. Um, however, the crime fraud exception does not privilege communications if the attorney is himself or herself, uh, if those communications are in furtherance of or to help conceal a crime. So I, I kind of like to say, you know, you can tell your lawyer where the body's buried, but your lawyer can't go help you bury the body. That's right. I mean, it's, it's technically two things. It's either that or that the, the, you're actually seeking help in commission of a crime. It's very similar, right? So it's one of those two things under the law. And yes, reportedly, I think ABC News is the one who reported this, um, that it was relating to a conversation regarding that false certification. But you could imagine a number of different, you know, before I saw that reporting, I, I imagine a number of different conversations this could be about, right? Because there was that false certification. There's also like a, a, alleged efforts to hide documents, right? Because that was a guy, Nauda, um, who was supposedly moving documents around. Um, and, you know, also obviously, you know, uh, for example, if there was, you know, continued retention of those documents after DOJ already, you know, came there, that might be uh, potentially um, a crime fraud exception. But nonetheless, yeah, it looks like it's about that certification. And I'll, I'll, it's worth noting, you know, just to go, you know, give some background on the facts of that. What happened was the DOJ served a grand jury subpoena. And actually, they made a personal visit. The DOJ, like, a section chief came out there and it's like, Hey, we really need our documents back. Please return them. Which by the way, my clients never get that kind of courtesy. Um, and then, um, and then they, they said, so they got a bunch of documents from the Trump team and, and DOJ said, we want a certification that, that you've returned everything. So 
this uh, certification was signed by Christina Bob. Right. And she signed it, but, but her testimony reportedly before DOJ was that she just, he told her to sign it. She didn't know anything about anything. She signed it as quote custodian of records, which is essentially just, hi, I'm the person in charge of keeping the records. Uh, That's what custodian records is. And she claims that she made changes to this in order to make it more accurate. Yes. There you go. Okay. Yes. So basically what what were the changes? I think there's one. She said like uh, something to like, to the best of my knowledge, like, wasn't it? Or, um, Uh, yeah. Based upon information I've received or something. Right. Exactly. It kind of left this thing of I'm signing this because someone has told me that we are in compliance. And that person was Corcoran. 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 And that's why she, she went in front of, I mean, she took a strategy that, you know, is somewhat risky by going in front of DOJ and just telling him this, taking the position like, I didn't commit a crime. I'm going to come in and just say the truth. And that's fine. I mean, it's a it can be a risky strategy because DOJ may not believe you or things may get more complicated later. But she did that. So now the 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 pressures on Corcoran. And DOJ must have some evidence. Right. I mean, the other real takeaway here is they have some really good evidence on Corcoran. Yeah, because they can't just be like, well, we think this conversation between Trump and Corcoran was hinky. Um, that's not going to be enough to pierce that privilege. No they way. would need to have kind of, as you said, to show the court that it's likely that those communications involved, you know, solicitation to commit a crime or helping or concealing or whatever. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, that's why this never actually usually gets invoked. Like DOJ, you know, you know, gets all upset about various things and like, will make a bunch of allegations over the phone about you or your client and this and that, but that never amounts to anything like this. So it's really something, uh, because it's the sort of thing that not only did Smith seek this, but the judge granted it judge, uh, uh, barrel, I think barrel Howell, is that her name? Um, uh, did right in her some her last days as chief judge, and so I mean this this suggests to me that this is really full steam ahead, and they have some very strong evidence. If Corcoran's charged, um, wow. Yeah. So 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 the if if they get to these communications, just to break that piece down, then Corcoran may be on the hook for obstruction, presumably would right. be the obvious thing, and then they can put pressure on him i guess to testify against trump provide information flip etc well it's yeah i mean just to to tease out the implications there first of all another obvious crime would be a false statement in the yeah, course yeah. of a federal proceeding right so because the certification is right. a false statement so it's very straightforward even though he didn't sign it yeah because he caused someone to sign it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so that that would be those would be the those would be the likely crimes and then the other the, the tantalizing thing is Corcoran knows all sorts of attorney client communications with Trump. And given that there's already been a ruling by a judge that there's a crime fraud exception that applies to certain communications between him and Trump, he may reveal others that ultimate that they have a taint team, let's say, here and then present to uh, the judge, uh, you know, trying to seek uh, permission to use those as a crime fraud exception I mean, under the crime fraud exception, which ordinarily I would, 
you know, I would uh, predict or, you know, handicap is like extremely unlikely, but given that they've already had some success there, like who knows? And that's fascinating because people are, I'll say from personal experience, people are very unguarded with what they say to their attorneys, understandably, because that's the whole system is built around. It's a bedrock of the whole way the system works. And do you think that this is just oral communications? I mean, Trump famously doesn't use email. Yeah, I think it's so this would be Corcoran truthfully testifying about his communications, his oral communications with Trump? I bet he kept notes. I bet what this is about is turning notes. I, I, I actually don't think, I think it would be very, I think it would be an interesting thing if, if the judge gave granted um, the crime fraud exception, just based purely on the say so of an attorney who's under hot water, right? It is looking for somebody to blame. So I, I think he probably had contemporaneous notes. Mm. That's my gut. Yeah. That makes sense. So this to me, by the way, is really big news. Like if I, if I was on the other side of this, I'm just, look, I'm just commentating on it. But if I was like in the defense team uh, here, I would be like super concerned about this. Like this would concern me more than Alvin Bragg and all the shenanigans that we're talking about in in the last second. I'm just laughing at like what those notes (laughs) would look like, like client requested me to sign it to sign the certification but there are still classified documents in the storage room i mean like you know would I- yeah but I, I if if you're him wouldn't you take those notes and like protect yourself i mean most lawyers would back out of that representation right away mm-hmm. so i'll just tell you right now i mean and i'll say this as somebody who practices criminal law regularly all the time. This is not my day job. I do not spend my time on TV, Twitter, podcasts. It's like my main job. It's like a super side job for me. I spend many hours a day practicing law. And I'll tell you right now, if anyone tries to jam me up, I'm out of there. You're like, like, it's not worth it. I have, I do. Oh yeah. And just, I never do one-on-one conversations with my clients. I very, I mean, almost never. I have an associate all the time taking copious notes of everything. Well, and that, I wonder if that could be like, if, Christina Bob could have been privy. Yeah, I don't know. But but I just I I, I mean there's there's a reason why. Like I'm never gonna get jammed up on my clients. So that's that's just the way you practice criminal law. And why you frankly, the way you practice law in a lot of circumstances, right? Taking notes. And this is my I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but especially for Trump, like every lawyer that has worked for him has gotten jammed up you know they've gotten charged criminally they have been disbarred they've been suspended i mean i'm trying to and and they don't get paid it's so stupid like why would you there used to be a time when i think representing the president of the united states would be or a former president of the united states would have like major career and now it's just like who's next in the clown car yeah. Like, I think it just tanks your reputation. It's an interesting thing because so when we were at Yale Law School together, I interviewed with the multiple firms. I remember interviewing with Williamson Connolly. And at the time, the partner actually who was out at Yale doing the David Kendall. Da- yeah, yes. David Kendall. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. He was the, the lead lawyer representing Clinton in the impeachment stuff. And that was like a big deal at the time. It was like, oh, I represent the president of the United States. And that was like a very prestigious thing. And at least that was the way he portrayed it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is very different. It's interesting. I don't know if you remember, there's that one 
you know, rather talented lawyer in Florida who got like a huge upfront money payment to leave his big law firm to represent Trump. Remember that? And he did the appeal down in Mar the Mar-a-Lago appeal. In front of Eileen Cannon? He no, yeah, he did the appeal. Yeah, I think he did the, oh, he appeal, did the appeal to the 11th Circuit and this and that. And it's like, boy, I mean, he got like a huge upfront payment. But it's just, is that even worth it? I mean, if you're talented enough, you could just make money doing other. I break money representing all sorts of people who are much more anonymous than Donald Trump. That was smart, though, right? Like getting the upfront payment and you're doing an appeal. So you're just arguing a purely legal issue. <laughs> sure. Like you may not even need to like talk to Trump. Like you're just like, I'm just going to look at the the record and the ruling on, on the lower court and make my legal argument i think that's where he ended up i think he, he originally got a lot of money because he said he was going to handle it all and i think he ended up doing the appeal because he's less you know he doesn't want his reputation destroyed and lose his law license and all that yeah <laughs> So, Asha, this was not the only uh, video conference we had this week. I will say there was a lot of interesting things about uh, the the conversation we had. That was on your Substack, right? Yes. So you and I sort of had an emergency powwow on uh, Sunday night um, to go over, you know, because we were on Indictment Watch and my Substack subscribers had a lot of uh, questions and you know, I know that it's just always helpful talking through them with you because it's complicated. Um, and uh, we had a, a little Zoom call, which I then posted, and people really loved it. So just so you know, you have a lot of fans. Oh, that's not well, that was nice. I, I will tell you, it's clear you have lots of very subscribers have very strong feelings about you, which is fun to see. <laughs> I will note uh, you were wearing a, a Princeton sweatshirt the whole way through. It was because it was March that Madness, was. right? It, yes. So, um, as you know, I am not a big sports person. <laughs> to put it mildly. I, yeah. And, yeah. And last week I watched, I voluntarily watched sports in a bar twice, um, which is a huge <sighs> Amazing. thing for me. I have to say it was really fun. Like, it's kind of fun being, you know, at a bar and strangers and they're all like rooting for your team for whatever reason. I, I don't know that the people, because I was in Connecticut and then Vermont, um, that anyone was in, invested in the other team. Uh, the first one round was uh, Arizona, and then the second round was Missouri. So I think when they saw me in my orange and you know cheering for Princeton, um, they kind of joined in, and and so it was nice camaraderie. Um, and of course, then they, they won. won, which was amazing. amazing. Yeah, I, that that is cool. I mean, that, look, Princeton's always, I think. Are, are usually the the best team in the in the Ivy League, but that's not saying much, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, exactly. yeah. So getting out of the first round, usually like they're there, they're happy to be in the happy to be there camp. So that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, my senior year was when Princeton beat UCLA in the first round, and I still remember being in my dorm room and watching that. And um, I never went to any sports events at Princeton. Like, so, you know, like, again, it was like one of the few times that I was like watching um, a sports event um, this time on TV with my friends. We were like drinking. Uh, and that night was just a huge party at Princeton. Um, and the next day on the cover of the Daily Princetonian, which is the school paper, the headline was David 49, Goliath 41. <laughs> And it has a picture of 
uh, a sophomore on the team, Mitch Henderson, jumping up in the air. Um, that sophomore is now Princeton's current basketball coach. Wow. Um, and the cover story was written by my Princeton classmate, uh, Grant Wall, who was, you know, a pretty well-known sports journalist who recently passed away. Um, and so that that cover is sort of, you know, has a lot of different layers of meaning. That's really cool. Yeah, he, he was Sports Illustrated writer, I think, for a while, right? That's yeah. right. No, th yeah, he was Sports Illustrated. And then I think he left Sports Illustrated after 10 years and had a had a very popular Substack where he covered soccer. Yes, and he, um, he passed away in the Middle East, right at the at the World Cup, I think, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, look, I'll just say, look, I I'm a huge sports fan. Like, so that's like a big thing for me. But more pro sports because I went unlike you went to Princeton. I went to the University of Chicago, great school, but it's like Division three. Um, and I'll get tell you a secret. I was actually the sports editor of the Chicago Maroon, which was our school newspaper. Really? I became editor in chief the year after, but I did sports editor for a year. And I during that entire time did not go to a single Chicago Maroon sporting event. <laughs> Um, I, I had a lot of writers who would go to these things, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Uh, division three is just not my thing. So I never really got into college sports. I do watch March Madness sometimes and saw some games with my father-in-law who, um, you know, was super into it. So I watched some, some games with him, but I am so more of a professional sports guy. I mean, I was born in Chicago in yeah. 1976. So I was eight years old when Jordan joined the Bulls. So I'm like way more of an NBA fan than Mark. Yeah, basketball, you have baseball. I'm a huge so know, White Sox fan. And yeah, Bears you have a lot of different teams. Yeah, it's no, no, so, and I think that was like what was hard for me is that I grew up in Southeastern Virginia. Yeah. And we didn't have really any teams. I mean, the one team that I know in high school, there were a lot of people who were fans and I would kind of get on board was Duke basketball. Okay. Um, my girlfriends were all infatuated with Christian Leitner, who was indeed very cute. And so I was like, I'll watch him. Um, and so uh, later on, I was watching a ESPN 30 for 30 sure. on uh, why I still hate Christian Leitner. Yeah, as I say, because I didn't know that there's this whole history here with UConn. Yeah, so usually Christian Leitner is like the first two words and sucks is the word after they came after. Right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> and and there was like like a U Duke UConn game, and he like knocked somebody. I mean, yeah. there was some drama that I didn't realize everyone here um, hates Christian Leitner. Um, but in the course of watching that thirty for thirty, it turns out that there are T-shirts out there that say that say I still heart Christian wow. Leitner. I mean, these girls must be wearing these. And I, guys are like, this is a pretty I, white I bought one. Oh, my God. I bought one. <laughs> you should not admit that publicly. Um, I have there. I think there's a photo online of me wearing it because oh my. Duke won the NCAA tournament several years ago, yeah. I think. Like, yes. It, it was whatever, 2015, maybe, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and I was watching it with... The guy I was dating at a time, um, at the time, who uh, is a UConn fan, and mainly I was just trying to irk him. Um, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't continue dating very long. Sh shocking! <laughs> no, you didn't make, didn't make it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, 
Wow. Yeah. So I always look, I, whenever I do my bracket, I never pick Duke. I always pick going against Duke. I don't know. It just feels fun to root against them. Uh, they're like those that uh, they're like the, villains. yeah, they're like the villains. It's like ready for the Yankees or something. Unless you live. I mean, I understand if you live in New York, like I totally get it. If you live in the Bronx or something, but like to the rest of us, like let's root against them. Wow. Okay. Um, now but one thing before we go, um, there was like a secret surprise in that video conversation <laughs> we had that I totally didn't notice, um, which is why I, I was not the FBI agent. I did not see this. Um, so what, what was going on in the background at the uh, Rangava residence? Yeah. So, you know, I posted that video on my Substack, and people were commenting and on the, com on the substance. And, and then I, there were some comments that were like, I love the person doing the army crawl was hilarious. And I was like, is this some wacky comment? I don't even know what this is. And I didn't really get it. And then Room Raider posted a clip of our of our Zoom call. And what you see in the background, this is happening behind me, is basically like legs slithering <laughs> towards the door. And then you just see a door like slowly open and it turns out my son was trying to get into my office because he had printed something for his homework um, and he was trying to avoid being in our shot. Amazing. Um, and so he was he was stealthily, he was doing a ninja move, uh, which is frankly hilarious when you watch it. I, I didn't even see it. I actually, when Room Raider posted that, I actually had to look for it, like I had to really look for it to <laughs> see it. He is very stealthy, much more stealthy than my dog, who if he wanted something in my room would be barking like crazy. Amazing. Yeah, I, I sent him the the roommate tweet, and he's very embarrassed. I was like, "You're famous now," and he said, "No, mom, this is super embarrassing." Oh my god, that's hilarious! So, Not as embarrassing yeah. as wearing the Christian Leitner shirt, but okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll wear that for our next uh, podcast. Deal.